Okay, well, here's where we are schedule-wise. I'm going to take one more Sunday today on uh, the witness of the Old Testament to Christ. Look at the story of Jericho, look at the story of Samson, look at the story of Solomon, and then look at a New Testament passage and try to trace themes from the Old Testament forward into the New Testament. And then we'll wrap that up. This was all under the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture and principles for interpreting Scripture. And here we were talking about um, how to read the Old Testament and see how it, in many ways, looked forward to Christ. And uh, last week we did... um, we did the story, did we do the story of Noah and the flood a couple weeks ago, and then Abraham sacrificing Isaac, and Joseph sold into slavery, um, and, and Moses striking the rock, and, uh, and then water coming from the rock. So, so we'll go on and look at these things today. Um, there is an outline. If you are new, um, Wayne Watson has some outlines for you. Where are you, Wayne? If you need an outline... Just kind of keep your hand up and Wayne will get to you. Here's, here's the situation. Um, I got an email from someone saying, you're going over things so fast, I can't take notes quite so fast. Can you hand out a more detailed outline? Well, I just get these done the night before. I don't know why. Just, and so it was about 11.30 last night that I finished what I'm going to do this morning. Um, somehow, I, I don't know, I've got to figure out how to make life work different to, than doing that. But anyway, that's the way it works. And uh, for me to condense uh, all these notes into uh, the details, it's just going to take more time, and I haven't done that, but I'll, I'll, I'll see if there's a, a process to get that. I, otherwise, starting next week, then we'll, we, I do have outlines already. So then the necessity of Scripture and then the sufficiency of Scripture we'll do the next two, three weeks, and then we'll go on to uh, questions about the doctrine of God and how we can know God exists and then the attributes of God, and that'll take us another several weeks. So... That's what we're doing, starting working through systematic theology. Okay, that was all I wanted to talk about. So here we are. How does the whole Old Testament point to Christ? We're talking about biblical theology or an emphasis on the history of redemption. How God was teaching people through patterns or types looked forward to Christ. Paul says Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And the New Testament in other cases does bring up examples of narrative passages where people foreshadowed Christ. Like Jesus says that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be in in the earth. He uses Jonah as a foreshadowing of himself. And uh, so the goal is to view every text in the, putting it in the picture, in in the scope of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The whole Bible is God-centered, and we look for what God is doing. It's all profitable for teaching, and it was all written for our instruction. And uh, actually, uh, what we see in the Bible as it goes forward is that God is just gradually unfolding his plan through history. And to, to understand this takes thought and study. Even those who lived with Jesus during his earthly ministry were slow to understand how the whole Old Testament pointed to Christ, and Jesus had to teach them. So on the road to Emmaus, after his resurrection, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's what we've been trying to do for the last two or three weeks, kind of look at sample uh, examples in all the scriptures, all the Old Testament scriptures, to see uh, what things pointed forward to Christ. And so the story I want to look at this morning, anybody still need an outline? Hold up your hand over here. It's the same outline I've been using the last three weeks, so there's nothing new. But you may have forgotten it in order. But um, so now let's uh, let's look at this story of Jericho and see if uh, if we can understand what's going on there. Jericho um, archaeologists have found uh, that uh, 5,000 BC it was quite a wealthy city. Um, and already, it's one of the oldest cities uh, ever discovered in the history of the world, and there were mirrors and combs and other kinds of jewelry found from uh, thousands and thousands of years before. Now, here the people of Israel come about 1400 B.C., and, uh, and they can't get into the Promised Land because this walled city is in the way, in the way... Uh, keeping them from entering into the promised land, the land that God had promised to them. They'd waited 40 years in the wilderness, and they're trying to get into this land filled with milk and honey, but Jericho's guarding the way. 
So now what happens? We'll read the story. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. This you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And that's a pretty interesting picture. They're marching around the city. They're blowing the trumpets. What's going on? And what are the people of Jericho thinking? Well, all these people are marching around blowing trumpets seven days in a row. Very strange. They're not attacking. They're just blowing the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, this is on the seventh day, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. So the trumpets are going, they're going in front of the Ark, and then the Ark is coming after that. That's that box, gold-covered box um, that uh, that God had told uh, Moses to make and put in the temple, the tabernacle. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early. You know, I should mention here, they're they're blowing, here they're saying, blow the trumpets of Ramsarns before the ark of the Lord. But here it's, they're blowing the trumpets before the Lord. Because the Lord is enthroned above the ark of the covenant. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early on the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. A little earlier, Joshua had sent two, two spies into the city of Jericho. They stayed with at the home of Rahab, and she had hidden them and helped them escape. And uh, they had said, well, when we come, we'll keep you safe. And she had expressed faith in the God of Israel. She'd heard of how God had protected the people and, and allowed them to cross the Jordan River. And, um, and uh, she had this kind of very initial faith in God. And so uh, they rescue her and all who are with her in her house, that she had told them, come, come here when they, when they start to attack and they'll rescue us, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, The people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So the Lord is with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Now, That's the story. Now, what are the themes that we see here? What is God doing in this? Is there a foreshadowing of Christ in any way? I'm going to take a couple of minutes and just let you make notes on your piece of paper, see what themes you can see here. Well, is there significance about seven times around? Hmm, well... (laughs) Is, is kind of a number of completion. 
<laughs> just hold on. I'll give you another minute. Just kind of think. Now, here's here's the thing. When we when we talked about Abraham sacrificing Isaac, that was so clearly a foreshadowing of the death of Christ, where God gave His only Son. It's a foreshadowing of Christ's first coming uh, to pay the penalty for our sins. When we had this story of um, well, Cain killing Abel, I think there was a picture of of a righteous servant of God, a faithful servant of God, offering a sacrifice, but he was killed by someone of his own family. And I think it's looking forward to an even greater servant of the Lord who would be delivered up to death by his own people. Uh, and then uh, the book of Hebrews says this, the blood of Jesus speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel um, because it didn't cry out for judgment, it earned forgiveness. So there are foreshadowings of Christ's death. And when Moses smites the rock, as we saw last week, where God said, I will stand before you on the rock. God is standing on the rock. Moses is instructed to, to strike the rock with his staff. There's a picture of God himself bearing the punishment for our sin. So in the Old Testament, there's a lot of looking forward to uh, Christ dying for our sins in different figures, in different ways. But here... It doesn't seem to be anything about a righteous servant of God dying or a son dying or anything like that, a sacrifice There's uh, for sin. There's another theme coming, and I think it's telling us that, that uh, the Old Testament looks forward not just to Jesus' first coming, but what is the theme here? It's, a, it's, it's, final, it's a theme of judgment, isn't it? Judgment and destruction. And when I studied this passage myself, how many of you figured out it's a judgment theme? Did some of you get that? Oh, see, a lot of you are thinking that already. Uh, when I started working at that, here's, here's the first, I started just reading about this, and then something that got me going in this direction was Trumpets are really prominent, and they're mentioning the trumpets, the trumpets, the trumpets. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to do a study on trumpets in the Bible and see if I can get anything out of this theme of trumpets. Trumpets are blown for seven days. What do trumpets mean in the Bible? Now, look, you only had two minutes. I wrote, I had a lot of time to work on this, so you know, you might. But um, there are unbelieving enemies of God's people. They're, they're, they're thinking they're secure in their walled city, the city of Jericho. And then this evil city of the Canaanites is completely suddenly destroyed with fire. But a small number who have faith in God and are obedient to him are rescued from the destruction. That's Rahab. Okay, Rahab and her family. And it's very interesting that... A man named Joshua, just a second. I'm, I'm going to come back to Joshua. I'm going to do the trumpets now first, and then I'm going to come back to Joshua. So here's what happened when I started looking up trumpets in the Bible. <clears throat> trumpets. Exodus 19.6, at Mount Sinai, in the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled trumpet. This is a trumpet signaling that what is going to happen here in Exodus, it's just before the Ten Commandments. Who's coming? The Lord God is coming. Okay, and the trumpet is announced, is proclaiming that God is coming. Get ready. Numbers 10.2, make two silver trumpets. Of hammered work you shall make them. You shall use them for summoning the congregation for breaking camp. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Why? Because that's where God comes. So there it's trumpets saying, get ready, God is coming, assemble before him. Numbers 10.9, when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and you shall be saved from your enemies. So there it's trumpets saying, it's, it's, it's kind of, in, in a way it's saying, God, uh, please come. And sometimes it's announcing God's presence, sometimes it's a kind of a, a plea for God's presence. When the trumpets are blown, get ready because God is going to show up. 
First Chronicles 16, and Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. That's as they're proclaiming that God is coming. Second Chronicles 13, 14. This is um, the northern and southern kingdoms. Uh, Jehoshaphat and Abijah battling, and Jehoshaphat is outnumbered Abijah two to one, and he's surrounded him, and he's, he's going to set an ambush. But Judah looked, and behold, the battle was in front of and behind them, that's the southern kingdom, Judah. And they cried to the Lord, and the priests blew the trumpets. Then the men of Judah raised the battle shout, and when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. And again, the priests blowing the trumpets are kind of a proclamation that God is coming to help us. Psalm 47.5, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. God's presence is connected with the trumpets. Ezekiel 33.2, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, if he sees the sword coming, this is the sword of God's judgment, upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. So again, it's a sound, there, uh, uh, a trumpet warning that God is coming in judgment. Um, Joel 2.1, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. Zechariah, the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning, the Lord will sound the trumpet, and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. So I begin to see that one of the main purposes for trumpets in the Old Testament was to proclaim that the Lord is coming. And uh, sometimes he's coming to meet with his people, but sometimes he's coming in judgment. <clears throat> They're announcing, proclaiming the presence of God. So we see in the New Testament in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed, because that's when Jesus comes back. And First Thessalonians, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we go over to Revelation first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire <coughs> mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and the third of the earth was burned up. Here's God coming in judgment, and the last trumpet, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat, sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped, the trumpets proclaimed that the rightful king has come to reign over the earth forever and that all belongs to him. He has come. And so trumpets announce the coming of the Lord, sometimes in judgment and sometimes to dwell in the midst of his people. So when trumpets are blown for seven days, I think they are warning the people of Jericho that the Lord, the, the Lord of heaven and earth is coming in judgment. Get ready. Someday will we look, that we'll take that and look forward that someday Jesus will, himself will come back in even greater judgment to the earth. And today, as we proclaim the gospel, it is in a sense a trumpet that warns of Christ's return. It's kind of like a trumpet. It really isn't really a trumpet. And Paul, when he starts preaching to the Greek philosophers in Athens, he said the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So um, Jericho, the trumpets, were saying, the Lord is coming. Get ready. Parallel to today, we're still looking forward to the Lord's return. And our trumpet's sounding already. See, uh, proclaiming. That, uh, that one day, suddenly, Jesus is going to come back to the earth. So there's a theme. Number two, the unbelieving enemies of God's people think they are secure in their walled city. They're wealthy, according to their age, they're secure, but suddenly destruction comes to them. Is there a parallel today? Now, 
I think so. I think that uh, as today, so it will be throughout the whole world before Christ returns. Jesus says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, there Jesus is talking about the flood. He's not talking about Jericho. But I think there are events of judgment throughout the Old Testament that are foreshadowing final judgment. So the flood with Noah is foreshadowing final judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed by fire and brimstone from heaven, that's foreshadowing final judgment. And I think this conquest of Canaan that starts with the conquest of Jericho, where the whole city is destroyed and it's all burned, that's a picture of final judgment too. And, 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 and it comes suddenly, just as the flood came suddenly. And then the evil city of the Canaanites. And if you go back before Joshua 6, you see God talking about the sins of the Canaanites and how wicked and evil they had become. The evil city of the Canaanites is suddenly destroyed, completely destroyed with fire. So I think that looks forward again to the fact that a final judgment by fire is coming someday to the whole world. And judgments in the Old Testament do foreshadow the final judgment. Peter says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works done on it will be exposed. And then, let me see, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to go back here for a minute. Just hold on. Don't, don't, don't get a headache by watching me blink all this way. Are you, are you tracking with me on these themes? Okay. I, I maybe should have stopped and said, just you know, what, what themes did you see? But I, I'm just going on. Um, so trumpets are blown. And once I, got, once I figured that out, I think, oh, proclaiming the presence of the Lord, but he's coming in judgment. Unbelieving people think they're secure. The evil city is destroyed. But a small number who have faith in God are obedient to him, are rescued from destruction. And... Now, here's another theme. This is very interesting. Um, and this is a little special detail. In the story of Jericho, we have the people of Israel led by Joshua, Hebrew, Yehoshua. Uh, and Greek, it's in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it becomes Jesus, which is the name given to Jesus in the New Testament. He leads the people of God and he rescues Rahab and her family. But when we think about Joshua and we kind of look at a concordance and look back earlier, there was something that had happened in the life of Joshua earlier. He had visited the land earlier, 40 years earlier, but secretly. And nobody knew he would later come back as ruler over God's people and take possession of the land. Because way back in the wilderness, when they were starting to wander in the wilderness, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, they were among the 12 spies that had gone into the promised land. Ten of the, they came back and 10 said, oh, the people are too big for us. They're giants in the land. We'll never defeat them. They'll swallow us up. But Joshua and Caleb were the two faithful spies. And they, they tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. They are bred for us. Their protection is, in other words, we're just going to devour them easily. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So <laughs> Joshua had come earlier and nobody knew that he was going to come later as conquering king. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I recall that the scarlet cord that you played yep. there, that scarlet cord outside the window for 40 years? Uh-huh. There's a scarlet cord that was outside. No. Um, the, the 12 spies went in. They went 40 days throughout the whole land. Then they came back. They didn't see Rahab then. I don't think she had even been born. Then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. 
Because God says, you didn't believe me? All right, stay. Then they come back and they get, get, they're getting close to Jericho, and then Joshua sends two younger spies in. Not him. So, yeah, good. I, in fact, I had to sort that out myself last night just to... Yeah. So, then, so this is more recent. Perfection, yeah. And perfection, and how when Christ was on the cross, remember he said it is finished, and the curtain was torn apart, yeah. there was access to the Father. Yeah. I was thinking about how going around like that, but then uh, their time of being wandering in the desert was over, and the walls came down, and there was access to the promised land. Yes, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's very much a theme of forgiven sinners rescued, and now uh, there's there's judgment on God's enemies, but there's entrance into the promised land. Then, yeah. So all of a sudden, it's coming together. <laughs> okay. So and after judgment falls on the wicked unbelievers, Joshua leads the people into the promised land. Now I'm gonna. Click forward a whole bunch of slides again uh, to where we um, go past the trumpets now. And just a second. Okay. Okay, we've got that. Now, a small number who have faith in God and are obedient are rescued from destruction. And I think that parallels the fact that, w- that when Christ returns, he will rescue his people from eternal destruction. Sinners who have been forgiven, as Rahab and her family were forgiven. 2 Peter 2.6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So Peter doesn't take the story of Jericho. He takes the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and said when God brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, he rescued Lot. In the previous verse, he said when God brought the flood, he rescued Noah and his family. So I think there's a a set of parallels here, and it's similar to uh, this story of Jericho. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And he could have said, uh, if... If by bringing fire, fiery judgment on Jericho, he made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly and rescued righteous Rahab and her family. See, I mean, the same idea. Um, and, and so today, I think we should look forward and say when Christ returns, he will rescue his people from eternal judgment and destruction. And just as a man named Joshua, Yehoshua, Jesus, Jesus leads the people of God and rescues Rahab and her family. So I think that causes us to look forward and say someone greater than Joshua is going to come, namely Jesus himself. He has already visited this world, but the people did not recognize him as rightful king. Someday he will return as conquering king, leading the people of God, and he will rescue his people from destruction and keep them from judgment. Okay? (laughs) Is that neat? And after judgment falls on wicked unbelievers, Joshua leads the people into the promised land. After Jesus returns and defeats all his enemies, he will lead us into a greater promised land, the new heavens and new earth, where we will dwell with him forever. So what I'm seeing in the story of Joshua and the fall of Jericho, again, is not just... I mean, it's true at one level, and we read it at one level, we say, here's a man who trusted God, the people were obedient, and God blessed them and rescued them, and we should trust God and be obedient. There's at one level there. But, but I think what we're seeing here is that God, in the way he planned history and ordained the events, was looking forward to the fact that, that, that um, his way of working is to give warning, to give warning, give warning, and then suddenly he comes. And he comes in judgment, but to save those who believe in him. And, uh, and so there's a pattern there. 
The story of Jericho, therefore, foreshadows Christ's second coming, the return of the king who had come once earlier. It foreshadows sudden judgment on unbelievers and defeat of God's enemies. It foreshadows the salvation of those who believe and entrance into the true promised land forever. What do you think? You all right with that? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I think with that, uh, the parallel being also coming to be Moses and John the Baptist coming to life, they would be the ones. Oh. Okay. Is this interesting? Um, as kind of parallel between Moses and John the Baptist and Joshua and Jesus, so that there was a forerunner who people thought was going to be the Messiah, but he wasn't, and then and then Joshua became the leader to lead them in the land. So John the Baptist was preparing them. Yeah, I'm, you could see that. Uh, here's the principle. The principle is, um, what is God doing in the first event? Be sure you know, and then what is parallel to what God's doing in the second event. Otherwise, it gets all really crazy and kind of without anchor in reality. But this seems to be, you know, God's preparing another, uh, another to follow, yeah, something like that. Okay, anything else on this? Yeah, E.G. On the trumpets, did you mention Gideon? No, I didn't mention Gideon, but there's another one. They blew the trumpets and there was judgment. Yeah, good, yeah. Another, another fits the pattern. Trumpets say, hey, the Lord is coming. Get ready. Okay. Yeah, Ed? Love the way God doesn't just, just save us, but uses us. He chooses to use us. Okay. Okay, two good things here. It's interesting that it isn't just Joshua, but it's the people who come, uh, and they they have to they have to fight in a way. They they are they are part of the conquering the city, so God uses His people, and then Rahab becomes part of the line. She does. She Rahab gets married, and her great grand great great grandson is King David, and so she's in the line of Christ. Um, very interesting. A Canaanite prostitute, a sinner, and she's redeemed and forgiven. And so we could do a whole story on Rahab. It would be wonderful. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Anything else? It's exciting, I think. I don't know. Carol? Well, I'm interested, too, if the people hadn't been faithful and listening to the Lord and be obedient to what he was asking. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. They might have said, this is stupid. March around this city seven days? <laughs> And blow these trumpets? These, these Canaanites are probably just laughing at us. And maybe they were. Um, so, but Carol is saying that the people had to be faithful. They had to be obedient and do what God said, even though they didn't quite understand it at the time. And then all of a sudden, wow, they see it was foreshadowing you know, the warning that God is coming, proclaiming the presence of the Lord. And, and I think then, uh, Mark, that the seven is a sign, kind of sign. The, 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 the plans and the preparation of the days are completed. They've come to an end. So like the seven trumpets, it's the final. And then all of a sudden, it's over. So, okay, good. All right, let's try another one. Let's go Samson, all right? Um, Samson, not a real happy story. He, uh, he's, you know, the Spirit of God comes on him. He defeats the Philistines. He has this incredible strength. Um, um, but he's, he's a sinner, and he's, I mean, he's kind of a profligate sinner. He's going and marrying a Philistine woman that he shouldn't, woman that he shouldn't have married, and then he goes and lives with Delilah, who he wasn't even married to, and then he, you know, he's found later at the home of a prostitute in Gaza, and they, uh, and the people of Gaza surround the city and wait for him to get up, and then he takes the city gates and marches off with them, and you know, so he brings kind of judgment on the Philistines, but he's not a very good example of moral conduct. So he's an imperfect picture of the Redeemer. He's not the one who's coming, uh, but in some ways he still foreshadows Christ. And right at the end of his life, Samson has finally been captured and his eyes have been put out by the Philistines, and they're mocking him. And so uh, the Philistines have gathered in this, uh, in this big stadium kind of thing. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, 
Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there on the roof, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed in his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. And the Philistines were the oppressors. They were the, they were the evil oppressors of God's people. And they were worshiping their god, Dagon, false god. What's the theme here? Well, it looks to me like a judge who is raised up by God is captured by his enemies, but he gives his life to set God's people free from their oppressors. And in an interesting detail, Samson stretches out his arms to bring down the house of the Philistines, but the whole thing collapses on him and he dies as well. So he gives his life. And the Philistines might have thought, hey, we've got him, we've triumphed over him, but all of a sudden, pow, they're all dead. And Samson gives his life and his people are, in a way, released from the bondage to the enemies. <laughs> and Samson grasped, okay, I've got that. A judge raised up, so a judge greater. I think this again, it's looking forward. A judge greater and far more righteous than Samson will come. And by his death, he will destroy the greatest enemy of God's people, Satan himself. In Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the principalities, the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him or, uh, it, it's in, him or in it, the cross. But it's in, and uh, Hebrews says he uh, destroyed him who has the power of death, even the devil, through, through his death. And so uh, here, through the death of Samson, he uh, destroys the enemies of God's people. All right? A judge who gives his life. Okay, there's another one. Uh, David. I'm not going to do any of the details of David's life now. We talked about David before. In many ways, David foreshadows the king who would reign on God's throne forever. How, how, how is David like the Messiah to come? Can you think of anything from David's life? How is he like the, the Messiah to come? He started out humble. He started out humble. Yeah. Didn't recognize him as anything, anything special. You know, I do not have any more, any more. Yeah. 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 He started young as a boy. Okay. What was his occupation? A shepherd. And Jesus is the great shepherd of his people. Okay. And then after a shepherd, he became a, a king. And so he foreshadows the, the one who will sit on the throne of David forever. He's a warrior, and Jesus is a mighty warrior who will defeat all his enemies. David is one place called a man after God's own heart. And so he, in that way, foreshadows the Messiah too. So we could go through a number of stories in David's life and see what has happened. Now, we did that a few weeks ago. I mentioned the story of David and Goliath, where here, um, by trusting in God, a faithful servant of God, uh, bruises the head of the enemy, of uh, God's people, and, and, and destroys him. And uh, then... Um, and he does that, anointed by the Spirit of God, looking forward to, I think, the Messiah who will bruise the head of the enemy in a much greater sense. So in many ways, David looks forward to Christ. But now I thought we'd look just for a minute at Solomon. Um, after David dies, his son Solomon becomes king, and there is more blessing in Solomon's kingdom than um, had ever been and would ever be in the people of Israel. And I just picked out a few verses here from 1 Kings. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. <laughs> it just kind of, you know, that little short sentence says a lot. Life is good. 
They ate and drank and were happy. And they were numerous. God is blessing them. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So you got this picture of <clears throat> the kingdom has expanded so much and all these little nations around, they're, they're just bring, they've been conquered by Solomon and they're bringing tribute to him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, from the far north to the far south. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Nicer than Phoenix in uh, April, or maybe about the same. I don't know, what's the best month here? No, not now. It's too cold. <laughs> All right. But it's, it's, a, it's kind of a picture of abundance and beauty. Um, and, all this. And, and look what happened to Solomon. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. <coughs> now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. And there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She was just astounded. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. Isn't that amazing? Just uh, more wealth than anyone could imagine. More wisdom. And the, uh, just a glorious kingdom. Everyone at peace. Everyone happy. Everyone prosperous. And all the nations bringing tribute to Solomon. And all the nations amazed at his wisdom. Huh. Could it get any better? <laughs> Ever. <laughs> Could it? Does this foreshadow anything? Was Solomon ultimately the Messiah? Was he the offspring of Eve that would bruise the head of the serpent and bring deliverance to God's people? No, he strayed into sin after this in spite of all his prosperity. He married many foreign wives and they turned away his heart to other gods. So Solomon's life ends in tragedy. And the kingdom declines, and the kingdom is divided. So it's raised up to this great splendor, and then, and then we say, no, that looked like, oh, maybe is this it? Is this, is this the final blessing that God has for His people? No, there's something greater to come. And so, <clears throat> and when we read, thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom with which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. Well, whenever I read that, I think, you know, this is wonderful. But a king greater than Solomon is coming. His wisdom will be even greater. And his kingdom will be over the whole earth forever. And his wealth will be the wealth of all the nations. In fact, Jesus mentioned Solomon when he said the queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is saying that he is greater than Solomon. And, if, and the Queen of Sheba believed all that God had done for Solomon, then shouldn't you believe when you see what, you know, who Jesus is and, and the wisdom that Jesus had? So Jesus says he's greater than Solomon. And in fact, we look forward into Revelation. Now, I'm just going to back up a second. So 
what is happening is the Old Testament sometimes looks forward to Jesus' death and is paying the penalty for our sins, sometimes looks forward to his second coming in judgment, and sometimes it even looks forward to the glories of the heavenly kingdom. And I think that's what's happening with the wealth and treasure of Solomon. So in Revelation, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And we read in the book of Revelation and you can see the fulfillment, but much greater fulfillment of the, the glory of Solomon's kingdom. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass, more gold than even in Solomon's kingdom. And I saw no temple in the city. Solomon built a temple, but there's something greater here. The whole city is the temple. And you be in the temple, you're in the presence of God. And so... I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. You and I are going to be in that city. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Remember the nations bringing their tribute to Solomon, bringing their tribute and all their treasures to him? Well, now there's a greater fulfillment. The kings of the earth bring their glory into it. All the excellence, all the excellent things that they have produced and made, all the wondrous things that they have, they'll bring their glory into the heavenly city and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring in it, into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so I think that when we read in the Old Testament and we see Solomon, I think we should think that the glories of Solomon's kingdom and all his wisdom and wealth and the joy of his people foreshadow a much wiser king who will reign over the whole earth, not just from Dan to Beersheba, but from north to south, from east to west, and far greater wealth that will be given to him and far greater joy that will be ours as his people in the age to come, even greater than when the people of Israel dwelt every man under his vine and under his fig tree. All right? Sharon? I had a question about the number 260. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did too. <laughs> Sharon said she had a question about 666. Isn't that the number of the beast in Revelation? It is. I don't think there's any connection. I don't know. It just happens. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> um... Yeah. Well, now, if seven is the number of perfection, six might be the number of not quite perfect. <laughs> so Solomon had all his gold, but it's not quite what's going to be. I mean, maybe I'd go there with it. That's about all I. I wouldn't make any more of it. Yeah, John. Six hundred sixty-six talents of gold. This is earthly treasure. Yeah. So it's imperfect. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But earthly, uh, where is Satan's wealth? Yeah. Okay. It's earthly treasure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but I just saw that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Ed. Well, uh, it looks like God is keeping his temporal promises, his covenant promises. The, uh, he ruled the borders of the original land, the promised land that God gave. Yes, okay. He expanded to the borders of the original promised land. Yeah, and maybe even beyond. I haven't looked. I, there are maps that tell us. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so God keeps his promises. But I think there's fulfillment far greater than we ever imagine in the, where the heavenly city comes down to be joined with earth and we've got new heavens and new earth. It's amazing. It's wonderful. <laughs> okay, now I want to do one more thing. Just say, what about the rest of the Old Testament? This will be the last Sunday we work on this. But 
if you read the Psalms, do they look forward to Christ? Well, this book by Edmund Clowney, The Unfolding Mystery, he said, you know, there are several types of Psalms, uh, and they foreshadow Christ. For instance, they foreshadow him as suffering servant. And Psalm 22 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus quotes that on the cross. Okay? Or they foreshadow Christ as a king, greater than King David. And there are kingly psalms, like Psalm 45, that's praise to the king. Well, this is... Um, and then, uh, and then uh, the book of Hebrews takes that up and says, uh, quotes it of Christ. Your throne, throne O God, endures... Let's see. I think... Um, Psalm 45. It's, I'm not sure if it's Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. The righteous scepter is a scepter of your kingdom. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Um, yes, it is Psalm, I think it's Psalm 45. So anyway, it looks forward to the greater king than David. The Lord is my shepherd. Of course, Jesus is the shepherd who is looked forward to. Uh, and then the Lord of heaven and earth who rules over the waves and rules over the winds and places, puts the stars in place. And, and uh, Psalm 102 you, Lord, did found the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you endure. They will all, you will roll them up like a garment, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will never end. That's Psalm 102. And the book of Hebrews, in chapter 1, quotes that and says, this is about Jesus. He is the one who, um, who put the stars in place and who will roll up the heavens, and they'll be changed, but he is the same. The Psalms also look forward to the second Adam, the true son of man. Um, what is man that you are mindful of him in Psalm 8, the son of man that you care for him. You've made him little lower than the angels, uh, for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting all things under his feet. And the book of Hebrews chapter 2 takes that psalm and applies it to Christ, saying he is the one who will rule over the earth. And uh, he's the Lord of glory. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And Jesus is the one in whom Paul in 2 Corinthians calls the King of glory. So in many ways, the Psalms foreshadow Jesus. I didn't put it up here on the, on the slide, but there's another sense in which the Psalms reflect the inner emotional life of the true servant of God. And because of that, we can see in Jesus' ministries that the Psalms were frequently on his lips as he made them his own. And in that way, they kind of foreshadow the inner life of the heart of Christ as he was uh, the righteous servant of God, even greater than David. So, so the Psalms look forward to Christ in many ways. The Proverbs, well, Jesus is wiser than Solomon. And so uh, in a way, they're, they're foreshadowing the wisdom of Christ. So... Uh, I just I wanted to look look over a number of sections of the Old Testament like that and say they can look forward to Christ in many ways. Now what happens in the New Testament if we still keep this, let's look from Genesis to Revelation and trace some themes. If we still keep that idea, we can take a New Testament passage and go backward, look back and find Old Testament themes and then and see how they're they're brought forward in the New Testament and then look forward into the book of Revelation. We did that at Christmas time with the wise men bringing the gifts to baby Jesus and it looked back to the, uh, the nations coming to serve the, the, the anointed king and uh, looked forward to the wealth of the nations flowing into the heavenly kingdom. And, and, we saw, and also the wise men are Gentiles. And so it looks back to God's promise to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And it looks forward to the fact that in the New Testament, Jesus has us preach the gospel to all nations and the Gentiles come in. And then it looks forward to the great heavenly assembly where uh, a great multitude whom no one can number from every tribe and nation and people and tongue are gathered before the throne and the wise men coming. So you trace it back, Gentiles are saved, trace it forward, many Gentiles are saved. So uh, we did that with the story of the wise men. I want to take one more story and we'll end with this this morning. Um, the stilling of the storm at sea. And, and when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. 
And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? <laughs> okay, I wanted to peek forward to see what I was going to say next. <laughs> okay, now, um, when I'm looking at this, I'm saying, all right, here's a theme of following Jesus. There's a theme of, of um, the sea, the sea. What about the sea? And I want to trace it back, starting with Genesis and going all the way through the Bible. What is, what is happening with the sea? In a storm. Um, and then this fear and faith. See, why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. And there's somebody ruling the sea here. And then it's quite an amazing man. What kind of man is this? So, I mean, there's some, there's some themes. So now here's my timeline again, starting with creation, fall, Abraham, Moses, David, the exile, and then I go to the New Testament, Christ, the church age, the millennium, looking forward into the future, final judgment, final judgment, new heavens and new earth, on into the future. There are some themes here that we could kind of trace through the Bible. There's the, the theme of the sea and how it threatens death. Now, what about the sea? Right back here, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You get this idea of the churning, turbulent waters not really suitable for human beings to inhabit um, until God puts the land, the dry land, in the middle of the waters. And... And we go on, and oftentimes in the Old Testament, the, 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 the sea is threatening. It's a place that, uh, you, that storms come up and you die. And, uh, and the, 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 the people of Israel didn't really have rulership over the sea, although God said um, uh, that they were to be uh, subdue the earth and fill it and have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and all that. It, they were to have dominion over the earth, but but they just the sea was out of control, and it, and uh, and of course the great waters come in the flood, and they're waters of death, and they overwhelm the people of God, and so the sea is really a threat. It's the threat of death, and uh, let's see, are there any other stories about water overwhelming people and coming to their the sea or the waters? Moses at the Red Sea, yeah. I mean, there God protects them because the water, but then pow, it comes on the Egyptians. So the sea uh, brings death. Anything else? Not sure. Well, there's Jonah being cast into the sea. And the sea is just, you know, churning. Oh, yeah, and then Psalms. Some went down to the sea in ships, and they mounted up to the waves, and they, came, they, they, they despaired of life themselves, and they called out to the Lord, and the Lord saved them. But the sea is a threat. It's not tamed. Okay? And, and so now we come and hear um, Jesus is, is asleep in the boat. And, and the sea, in a way, it's, it, Lord, save us. We are perishing. It's threatening to overwhelm them, to drown them, to put them to death. And Jesus speaks a word to it and calms it, be still, and all of a sudden there's a great calm. And so, um, yeah, as we go forward, I read that passage in Revelation, and it said uh, in the heavenly city, and the sea was no more. Did you see that little phrase there? Um, and I've wondered about that, but I think what's happening there is that the churning, restless sea that's the threat to God's people, that that's, I don't think that means there's no water in the New Jerusalem because there's this river that gets deeper and deeper as it flows out. It just means that the untamed, restless sea is no more. So that when Jesus is in the boat and the waves begin to overwhelm him, it's just a reminder that God's command to Adam and Eve to subdue the earth has not yet been fulfilled. 
See, they aren't quite ruling over the earth. The earth is still out of control in some ways. But Jesus comes, and all of a sudden, pow, it's under control. So it's the command to add. All right, the C, and fear and faith, you get the... the um, um, well, from the very beginning, the, Adam and Eve, they don't trust God. They don't have faith. They, uh, they, they, they think they, that God won't do them good, so they, they fall. They eat, the, they eat the forbidden fruit. And um, the story of, well, do not fear, but, but believe the Lord with Moses and the people of Israel, with Joshua, remember the spies? And the, it's always throughout the whole Bible. And David with Goliath and all. Are you going to trust in God? Or are you going to be afraid of what you see around you? And uh, here again, that test comes to the disciples. But Jesus has no fear at all. He tells them not to fear, and we should not fear because, um, uh, because of God's care for us. So we, we, we could do dozens and dozens of passages of this fear versus faith. Man versus nature, who has dominion? That's what I mentioned. God wanted Adam and Eve to rule over the sea, but they didn't. And now Jesus comes and he rules over the sea. Who then is Jesus? What sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? What sort of man indeed? This is the one who can speak to the winds and the waves, see, be still, and they obey. So what we're seeing in Jesus is that he can do what no one else can do. No one has come along and been able to tame the sea. But Jesus speaks a word and does what only God can do. Only God could part the waters of the sea and the Red Sea and the people would pass through on dry land. Only God could part the waters of the Jordan and the people would go through in safety. Only God um, could rule over the sea and answer the people when they, were, uh, when they went down to the sea in ships in the Psalms and the great storms come up. They cry out to the Lord. Anybody who rules over the seas is God himself. And so when the disciples say, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? He's a man, he's a true man, who fulfills the command that was given to Adam to subdue the earth. But he's much more than a man. He's the Lord because he's the ruler of the, of the seas. And so this is a marvelous testimony of Jesus' deity. And it looks forward to the fact that one day all the earth will be subject to him and... Uh, all will be at peace and all will be well. And nobody's going to drown anymore <laughs> or be overwhelmed by the sea. Well, the victory is already won, but we have the spiritual warfare always going on. There's always warfare and conflict, yeah. yeah. In this age, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, Bill. Uh, Napoleon made a good testimony. He said, I know men, this man Jesus, there's no ordinary man. Yeah, this man, Jesus, is no ordinary man. Yeah. He isn't. He's just not. He's just, Whoa, what was this? He's still rubbing the sleep out of his eyes, you know, because he's been sleeping in the boat. Peace, be still. Pow. And out of the Old Testament background where no one tames the sea, this is God. This is God coming to his people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when he's there, you need to have no fear. Okay, well, we're not going to do any more. But D, what are the benefits of this approach to the Bible? I mean, just kind of give me some reaction as we just got one or two minutes here. Trace some themes, tracing themes from Genesis to Revelation. Is that, is it, what what do you see? Is Is it helpful to do that? Yeah. Go, just a second. Okay, go ahead. Well, there's so many clues and hints that you should get it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> not to yeah. yeah. Because God teach, he does his same lessons over and over and over again, so we should get it. Okay, what else, Laverne? Peace and assurance, like she's saying. Do we finally get it? Yeah, do we finally get it? And then we should have peace, that God will fulfill his plan. I mean, there's a real, that, my goodness, he's been working to fulfill his plans for a long, long time, and, uh, and in greater and greater measure. Yeah. yeah. What else, John, did you, who said Your something? Yeah, it gives you a deeper understanding of how of what God is doing. Yeah, what else? Yeah, Phil. I think this approach helps. We have a because I have a tendency to study the New Testament more since Jesus yes. came. Yes. But this is marvelous to show how the Old Testament gives us the New Testament. Good. I, I'm going to repeat because it's just it just gets on the tape here. But Phil is saying 
that he has a tendency, and I think we all do, to kind of gravitate toward the New Testament because we see more how it fits to us. But this helps us to see how it all fits together, and it gives us more encouragement to read the Old Testament and see these themes um, again and again. And it's kind of a discovery thing. Um, yeah, what else? Yeah, okay, Charlie. For me, it's just more proof that it's the greatest story ever told. Yeah. God is known to send Abraham and Isaac what he Yes. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it's the more proof that it's the greatest story ever told. That was what Margaret was saying to me. What an incredible proof of the truthfulness of the Bible and that God is in this, that he could plan all these things. And Abraham offering Isaac on the very mountain where Jesus was going to die. And, you know, and, and the, he, did, he didn't spare his own his son whom he loved, and then it's a foreshadowing of God giving his own son whom he loved. And all these patterns. Yeah, go ahead. Back here. Did you have your hand up? Yeah. Uh, uh, terms are faith. Uh, it does, I forgot your name. Paul, yeah. It does affirm our faith. I mean, when I see these things, my heart is just encouraged. Is, is that, are you feeling that? I'm just saying, oh, wow, God, this is really good. Yeah, go ahead. Well, the, when you talk about Noah, what stood out to me was that we talk to people about Jesus. You give comments about many ways to God. Yeah. Christ, but yeah. Hey, you weren't on the boat. Yeah, yeah, there's one way to God. There's one way to get saved. Yeah, good. Okay, good. Well, we can go on. Um, I thought we would end with a hymn, and I'm, I'm just, let's just do this for a couple minutes and we'll be done, all right?